Well, thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate being here. I love New Mexico. Uh, we lived here for about six years, actually, not in Albuquerque, but we lived in, in New Mexico. And ever since then, I've been on this quest as I travel, which I do travel a lot. In fact, I'm gone almost every week. And, I, and I've been to all 50 states, and I travel a little bit internationally. And I'm on this, always on this quest for Mexican food, good Mexican food. And I found certain states where I don't eat Mexican food. And I, I won't name those, but except for one, one is Montana. Uh, I tell people we only have bad Mexican food. And, and nobody knows what good green chili is. I, I found as I travel around, as soon as you get out of New Mexico, except for southern Colorado does. They, they have around the Pueblo area, that's pretty good uh, green chili. But other than that, uh, the only... The only green chili you can get are, are typically is, is in a can, and it's horrible. Uh, and so we, uh, when we come down here, we try to stock up, and I'm going to try to take, uh, I'll have to take some frozen back, and um, I, I'm going to try to take as much as I can, uh, check on the plane, so we can, we can get supplied for a while. So since I, I got here yesterday, I've had, uh, um, I went to Sadie's yesterday for lunch, and then I had uh, my host, my great host, Fred uh, Buenavides. I don't know if he's here this, this afternoon, but uh, they gave me green chili. I had a green chili smothered breakfast burrito. So I'm, I'm doing pretty well. So I'll have to try it for supper again and then tomorrow. And then I go to Berlin for a couple days with some friends down there. And they've, they've promised me um, uh, stacked uh, enchiladas, so which they, uh, I love. So anyway, so I, I'm just really pleased to, to be here. What I'd like to do today is... Um, is give you an introduction, and hopefully uh, in the time that we have is begin to change your view just a little bit about how you view conflict and how you can look at it through the lens of Scripture. And we're going to talk about some opportunities and uh, different opportunities that we have in conflict, and it ties really well with um, the messages that we've heard so far. In fact, I, I've been taking notes today, and I thought... Um, what a great foundation. And if you picture, if you will, that what we're going to talk about this afternoon and what, what, what peacemaking or the ministry of reconciliation is, is putting feet and legs to the gospel, taking what you've, what you've heard so far and, and, and put sort of action steps to that in your everyday lives. And so um, I, I couldn't think of better foundational work. But to help contextualize this just a little bit more, we're going to start with a video and it's, uh, it's uh, Chris, it's the vacation the wrong way. And up here, it's, it's titled uh, A Day in the Life. So let, let's watch, take a couple minutes and just watch it. It's very short, and I uh, hope you'll find it interesting. Hey there. Hey. So I'm trying to decide what to do for vacation this year. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What do you, uh, what do you think we should do? Good question. Um, you know, I was thinking this summer it would be a good idea if we went to visit my parents. We haven't seen them in a while. No, I, the problem is that's not a break for me. Yeah, your parents are hard work, especially your mom. I want to relax. I want to go to the beach. I mean, seriously, if we don't go see them, they can't come see us. They can't travel. It'll be another year before the kids see them. I get two weeks off for vacation. That's it. I'm aware. I want to use it to relax. That's it. I, I, I want to take it easy. Work's been hard this year. I want to go to the beach. What's the problem? Yeah, but we went to the beach last year because yeah. of the same reason. Yeah, and we got to relax. We got to take it easy. That's what I'm talking about. 
That's not what I meant. And you know that. Yes, the beach was fun. We all had a great time, but my father is not going to be around forever. And I don't want to feel like I missed this opportunity to spend time with him. I don't know why we always have to go through this. I wish you could just think about what I need or what the kids need. And it wasn't just always about you. Really? Really. So I'm selfish. I'm working 60 hours a week, okay, to pay for all these vacations, all this stuff that we do, so you can make all the decisions? Really? Is that how it's going to work? I'm just some big ATM. I'm going to throw money all over the place so you can make all the decisions. Yeah, go ahead and call me selfish. That makes a lot of sense. I'm selfish. I cannot take this anymore. Like, taking care of the house and the kids, like, that's not a real job. You know, and I work part-time. I pull my share. If it's that important to you to have a break, you should take one. Go to the beach. Call your golf buddies. Do whatever you want. And I'll take the kids. I'll, no, we'll see no, dad. I want to take a family vacation. Family vacation. I want to see my kids. I want to spend time with my kids. Well, care about this family as much as you care about your parents. That's what you need to be doing. We're right here. Us. That is so unfair. This is ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. You know what? You're right. You do whatever you want. I'm going to bed. You do that. I'm going to watch a movie. Please do not do that. Good night. I'll see you tomorrow. Good night. Why does it always have to be this hard? What? I've seen this movie, um, I don't know, 100 times, 150 times, and, and I always get uncomfortable. And um, I, I, uh, I think I get uncomfortable for a variety of reasons. And one is that um, I think about my almost 36 years of marriage, it'll be 36 years in June, of how many times we went through a similar situation. And none of you probably timed it, but would you, anybody care to take a guess how long it took him to go from an innocent question like, uh, think about what we're going to do for vacation this year, to a full-scale argument? Would you care to guess? Well, about a minute. Um, not very long. Uh, do you think maybe they've been down this road before? Well, I won't ask you how many of you uh, have been down this road before, but I can share, uh, and, and I'm, I'm not proud of the fact that uh, my wife and I have uh, experienced that or something similar many, many times. Well, those of you that have your Bible, I'd like to uh, just start with a, a short passage here, and it's uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. So if you have that, you can turn there with me. If not, you can just listen. And you guys are a, a really, I, I can tell, are a really well-read church here. You, you've studied scripture a, a lot, and you know that the Corinthian church uh, had a bit of conflict, didn't they? And, um, and in here it says, uh, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. 
The new has come. All this is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And we're going to be looking at some other scriptures in a minute. But here God says that um, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, first with him and then with others. And so often as Christians, we, we say, I've got a relation, great relationship with God, but I'm unreconciled with my brother or sister, and that's okay. But, but I, I challenge you with that. That is not okay. And we're going to look at, so we're going to look at some more scriptures in a minute. And, um, you know, we, we look at scripture, we look at our lives, and, and I, I've come to the conclusion over the last minute of ministry for full-time now for nine years, and I grew up in the church, that as Christians, we, we, we look at conflict a couple of different ways. Some of us, hopefully some of you look at it the right way, but most, I think, Christians look at conflict either as something um, that we just can't do anything about. It's, it's going to be there. And, and I love what uh, Dr. Carson has been teaching about suffering. Um, but, but we have, and he, he addressed this this morning, he said, or last night I think was, he said if... Um, you know, if we don't have conflict in our lives, if we don't have suffering, then we, we probably ought to be worried. But yet, we don't look at it that way, do we? We look at it like he was saying, like some Christians do, that we need to have this, this suffering-free, this conflict-free conflict life. And so we, we look at these relationships that we have, these, this conflict that we have, as um, just normal and natural with, it's just going to be there. There's nothing we can do about it. Or... Another way we look at it is it's just as it's kind of like a white noise, like a low hum. We, we don't even know that it's there. Uh, part of my work, uh, a big part of my work, is meeting with um, with pastors and church leaders around the country and, and somewhat to to a greater extent around the world. And oftentimes I'll be meeting with a pastor, or denominational leader, and they'll say, "Well, we don't really have any conflict in, in our church." I said, "Oh, really?" And they said, "Yeah, we don't. Uh, I think Peacemakers probably is a good ministry, but we don't really need it." And I said, "Okay." And I said, "Well, do you have any?" Uh, do you have any divorces in your congregation? Well, yeah. I said, well, do you have any people that are estranged from one another? Well, well yeah. I said, do you have people ever leaving because they're unhappy? They're because due to something that happened in the church with someone else? Well, yeah. Pretty soon they're going, okay, okay, I get it. Um, and, and if we look at each of our lives, this is, we don't have to be a pastor. Uh, we look at our lives, and, and, and I, I, I know that if I could sit down and talk with any one of you, and, and we were candid with one another that all of you would either have a broken relationship that you're in now or you've experienced one recently. And as Dr. Carson said this morning, um, you can't be alive for very long without having, without having some kind of issue. And uh, many, many times they're, uh, they're broken relationships. And conflict is all around us, and that's the world that we live in. It's, it's, we say often it's the air that we breathe. And uh, it, you know, it does affect our marriages, our families, our churches, and our neighborhood, neighborhoods. And, but God 
has given us clear instruction on how to deal with it. And we're going to look at some of that today. And it's exciting. I've kind of talked about the bad, but there's a good part about it. It's exciting as we begin to apply these principles, as we begin to apply the gospel to our everyday lives. Um, and if, it, if uh, Chris, if you could show that, there's a slide I'd like to, for you to look at. And I think, uh, again, as we talk about, if I could sit down with each one of you, we'd, you'd, I'll have a story to tell. And I, I have this picture of this. This is sort of a Norman Rockwellian picture. And, and, I, and we... Um, as, we've, as we teach this and as we talk to people, these are pretty typical things. If we take any congregation, and I, I suspect you will, be not, you will not be an exception, you'll, be, you'll face one of these issues or something similar. There's, there's uh, people that are estranged from their spouses or their, or their teenage daughter has gotten pregnant out of wedlock or... Uh, one big conflict today, I was, in fact, I was focused on the family a while back, talking to their head of counseling, and they said their second biggest call of people in conflict after uh, troubled marriages are adult children and their parents or parents and their adult children, a very, very common place today. And we won't read all those. You guys can read them. You can leave it up there for a few minutes if you want. And, um, but, but this is typical. We, we sit in the pews, we come to church, and we're looking for answers, and we want answers, but, but, but our, sometimes our hearts are hard. Sometimes uh, other people's hearts are hard, and we, we just don't know where to go with it. Um, but what we want you to learn, I know many of you heard Tara Barthel, the women heard Tara Barthel a few weeks ago, and I know she taught this too, is that we, we can begin to learn how to repair and how to reconcile these broken relationships. And In fact, we talk about opportunities in conflict, and we... There are many opportunities, but there's three key opportunities that you can think about in conflict. And if, if you're taking notes, you can write these down. Uh, the first opportunity is to glorify God. Um, hopefully, as you begin to study conflict, you can, you can learn how to glorify God. The second one is to serve others. And uh, the speakers talked about that this morning, about serving others. I think um, Fred, Fred talked about that and talked about his wife as a, a great person serving and then the third is grow to be like Christ. And it's exciting. It, it's, it, that, this doesn't come easy, but it's exciting when we begin to do that. And in case you think that um, conflict is uh, something that surprises God, take a look at Scripture. It's not hard. You, you have Adam and Eve. Take Adam and Eve. Uh, two perfect people in the garden, a perfect place. And what do they do? They sinned, didn't they? And, and, and then as we, as we look through Scripture, as we look at uh, uh, Moses, uh, Abraham, uh, David, um, and Peter, and, and the, these great men and women of the Bible, the, the one common theme is they, they sin. But then what was right after that? God demonstrated his glory. He demonstrated his mercy, his grace. And, and we can experience that same grace we and and god can show his glory through these difficult difficult situations in fact it, when you when you really think about it isn't that when god demonstrated his power most was in the midst of the darkest times that's when he really demonstrated his power and a, and a few other passages just quickly uh, in scripture psalm thirty-four, fourteen says turn from evil and do good seek peace and pursue it and then there's a key theme in, in the New Testament, Romans, starting with Romans 14, 19, said, let us make every effort 
to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Ephesians 4.3 again says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Hebrews 12.14 again says, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. And then, of course, in the Beatitudes, Jesus said that blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Uh, one thing that um, this theme, and they talked about a little bit about the New Testament, it says make every effort. It doesn't, God's not promising that we're going to have peace with all men. He says make every effort. So as far as it depends on us, and there's some scriptures for that. So let, let's take a little bit of look at um, what we call... Uh, the anatomy of a conflict, and I think with with the time that we have i want to i want to i think it 'll be time well spent to kind of take a look at that to, to look at a little bit different and we've as we 've looked at scripture and as we've we 've spent about thirty years doing this and we 've come up with this what we call the anatomy of conflict or the nature of conflict and it 's really three parts if you want to write these down, you could do that too uh, you don 't have to, but uh, we talk about the spark, the gasoline, and the fire. The spark is, are the things that trigger the conflict. They're not the conflict themselves. And we get kind of confused about that sometimes. And one of the, the sparks is, is God-given diversity. We're different. As I look around the room, I see young, I see old, I see men, I see women, I see uh, diverse ethnicity. And, uh, and, and so we're all different. And it, it sort of amuses me, having come out of the corporate world, that uh, there's all this, this talk about celebrating diversity when... God is the true author of diversity. I mean, you look at the world around us, and even in, uh, in, in Albuquerque and in New Mexico, there's, there's a great diversity of people. And so there, this diversity can cause differences. Like, as I mentioned, my wife and I have been married for 36 years. We were raised very similar backgrounds. Both were raised in the church. We were in church three times a week in our mother's womb, and we were raised to believe in, in the Bible and in God and accept Christ. Uh, but yet, even after 30, being raised the same and after 36 years of marriage, we still don't agree on everything. We don't even come close to agreeing on everything. And so because we're different, God created us with different desires. And uh, we, we used to have a Harley. Uh, we've had a couple Harleys. And, and I just loved to ride. When I had, we had downtime in the summer, I'd, I'd want to ride. We'd want to go, and I liked long trips. We've ridden across country. We've ridden to Alaska, been to Key West, and up to the top of Maine. And, and uh, my wife um, said, you know, Rick, I'll do that, but that's not my first choice. And her preference would be uh, to go to a mountain cabin somewhere with some books and, and just, just relax, just have some downtime. As I mentioned, I think I mentioned she works for the ministry as well. What she does is she takes our incoming help calls. So she spends most of her days with people who are in conflict. And so when we have, uh, we have downtime, she doesn't want noise, uh, which I had allowed, I had allowed Harleys. Uh, she, wanted, she wanted quiet and, and serenity. So we, we would have to not compromise, but we'd have to come to agreement on what we would do with this time. And, you know, in churches, we see, uh, we see differences of, of preferences of, of worship style. And we see different preferences of dress, of attire. I like to wear jeans. I, I don't wear jeans a lot with my travels, but I figure, well, I'm going to, going to New Mexico, so I can get by with a sport coat and jeans. And um, nobody said any, has said anything yet, so I think I'm okay. Uh, but some places uh, uh, don't accept that. In fact, um, I didn't go to the... Uh, an event a while back, but Ken Sandy, our president, went to a Mennonite event, which is actually my heritage. 
And they asked us not to wear even a wedding ring, that we had to be careful about what we wore. No neckties and no wedding rings. I said, well, I like the neck t- no necktie thing, but I'm not sure about the no wedding ring thing. But, but those, are, those are preferences. But sometimes we elevate those preferences to uh, what we call extra biblical. And we have to be careful of that. And then there's misunderstandings. And I am just continually amazed at how uh, misunderstandings can cause conflict. And I, I may even say things this morning that are the opposite of what I mean to say. For instance, these movies that we're watching... There's their title, working titles are Vacation the Wrong Way and Vacation the Right Way. And I'm almost always paranoid that I'm going to say, I'm going to give the wrong one because if we watch the wrong one first, it just won't be the same impact. And, but we do that. Have you, uh, we, we just have these innocent miscommunications. And instead of going to the person and clearing them up, if there's a misunderstanding, we don't. We, we let those things fester and, um, and, and they can become conflicts. And then, of course, we also have, along with those, we have uh, sinful attitudes and, and desires. Uh, Dr. Carson talked this morning about the, the, uh, the chap in uh, England uh, who became a pastor and actually came, ended up coming to the U.S., sound like, who uh, had adulterous affairs. And that's, there was conflict there from um, sinful desires, which, which we all struggle with to an extent, don't we? We have this sin nature in us. Even though we're saved by grace, we still struggle with that. Well, those are the sparks. Those aren't necessarily the conflict. Those are the sparks of the conflict. Now, if you think about a spark, if you, if you take your foot and stamp it out, it's gone, isn't it? Well, what if you throw gasoline on it? Um, and that's where our sin nature really comes in. And I am a bit of a fighter, and my wife doesn't like to. She's, um, when, we, when we talk about the slippery slope in a few minutes, we'll talk about escape and attack. And she's... She's typically an escaper, and I'm typically an attacker. And, and both ways can throw gasoline on the fire. And when we throw gasoline on a, on a spark, we, what happens? You know, it erupts into a fire, doesn't it? So the, the problem isn't the sparks. The problem isn't the differences. The problem isn't, our, isn't the misunderstandings. It's how we handle those uh, misunderstandings. And here we talk, I'm sure many of you in this church or, or associated with this church are familiar with the... Um, progression of an idol, which I'll cover quickly in a minute, but these, th- this gasoline is, are these desires, this, this fuel, and this comes from the heart, and it's always about the heart, isn't it? James 4.1 says, what causes fights and quarrels among you, among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? Within you? you want something, but you don't get it, so, and then it goes on to say you, you fight and quarrel. And, you know, when I read that, that passage for the first time in this context, I thought, wow. And I thought about my desires uh, and, and how they fueled my desires of, of what I thought respect. I, I'm the dad. You know, I'm, I'm a dad and I'm a husband, so I, I, I want respect. Um, but it's really selfishness. I, I'm, it's my pride that's coming out. It's the selfishness. A number of years ago, uh, quite a number of years ago, 20 now, in fact, we... Uh, our kids were, uh, our three children were around, I don't know, nine or ten, probably ten, eleven, and thirteen or somewhere in there, maybe a little bit older than that. And I was, had a job where I, where I traveled quite a bit, and I, uh, I thought, it, you know, it'd be really neat. We were homeschooling our kids. I thought, man, that'd be cool if I had a job that, um, if we had some kind of a business, you know, the homeschoolers, they want this cottage industry thing, I thought. So, yeah, we could have this cottage industry and, and, uh, 
I could be home and be with my kids, and they'd learn some skills. And so I began to kind of look around, and I worked in the food business, wholesale food business. And one day I was at a at a meeting with this wholesaler, and they had a they were they were kind of giving a state of the union business what what was going on in their world. And they announced that they had several stores for sale, and one was a, an IGA supermarket up in northeast Montana in a town where I had some relatives. And uh, it was a rural area, and I thought, oh, man, that'd be great. We could go up there, and we could live on this. We could live in the country. We could have this store. We'd have jobs. We'd be together all the time. And so I, I, um, I talked to him a little bit about it, and I went home and talked to Annette. And she said, well, that, that sounds interesting. And we had enough money in our retirement account, which should give you a, a clue there, our retirement account, um, that we had enough in there to uh, put a pretty healthy down payment on the store. And so uh, she said, well, that, that sounds like maybe something we could look at. But in my mind, it was something way more than that. We, it was a done deal. So we went up and we looked at the store, and I just got really excited. I'm this eternal optimist. And she, um, she's a bit more of a realist. I always see things how they can be. She sees the work to get there. And so I looked at it, and it needed work. It needed all kinds of stuff. And I thought, man, this is great. This is neat. So we... We spent a weekend up there. We just were, we went through the books. We met the we met the staff. The um, we, we we just looked at all the departments. Everything was going on, and we got in the car to drive back to Billings. We're about six hours away, and and I'm just thinking, wow, this is cool. I, it's a done deal as far as I'm concerned. And she goes, I don't think we should do it. I said, uh, <coughs> excuse me. She says, I, I I think it's wrong. And and she said, I, I just I can't put my finger on it, but I just don't think it's right. And I said, and and I got mad. I got mad. I, I, I just, I said, you, you, you can't be serious. I said, this is just perfect. This is what we, this is, this is of God. I said, can't you see that? This is obviously his will because I want it. And, and, but I had all these great reasons. And um, so uh, I won't go into the rest of the story except to say that we did do it. And it was, uh, that's actually what brought us to New Mexico because in a year and a half we lost the store. We lost our retirement. We lost our um, savings. We lost the house equity that we had had from the house we sold. And we ended up moving down here and with, with the furniture and um, a couple of cars and, and uh, went back to work. And so it, it was not a good time for us. We went to church. Uh, in fact, I was in deeply, we got deeply involved with the homeschoolers down here, and we put on a good show. But at home, it was not pretty. It was not pretty. She was angry with me. I was bitter and angry with her. And I tell you that story because it represents well the progression of an idol. Just as this movie did the same thing, this movie where we saw this, uh, the desires of the wife and the husband. Now, were either of those desires bad? No. She wanted to go see her parents. He wanted to go to, on vacation. He wanted to go to the beach. I wanted this store, so I thought I pictured this life. But what happens when we don't get that desire? It can become uh, a need. We look at it as a need. Well, I need that, and um, in order to be happy and complete, I've got to have that. And if we still don't get it, it becomes a demand. And that's what happened with me in the store, and that's what happened in this movie. And, and sometimes these these. Idle progressions can happen within seconds, or they can happen over time. They can, they can happen over weeks or months or years. And it doesn't matter what that good desire is. We often say good goods make bad gods. And these, uh, like I say, a lot of these, these desires are good. And then, and then if we still don't get it um, after, after we demand it, then it becomes an expectation. 
And when I demand something, I expect it to happen. And oftentimes, people don't even know. Have you ever had a particular... I use marriage stories a lot because I have so much experience at it. Not always good, but, you know, sometimes we have these expectations. Could be of our spouse, could be of our children, could be of our bosses, and they don't even know what the expectations are. But then when they don't meet them, uh, we become disappointed, don't we? When, and, and again, sometimes they don't even know what the expectations. Those of you that read Paul Tripp, he talks about this, that we have these silent, we walk into a room loaded with silent expectations. And that they're not met... Um, uh, we're, we're disappointed, and then we judge the other person. We become uh, the judge, jury, the prosecuting attorney, and, and when they haven't recognized and accepted my desires, then I'm, I judge, and then I'm going to punish. Then I'm going to punish. And that's what Annette and I did. We punished each other while we were at the store. She was angry with me. I was angry with her. And then, then when the store went bad and we lost it, then we really began to punish each other. Then, then it really kicked in. And um, it, took us, um, it took us about eight years before we could even talk about it. And then as we started studying scripture, and we were going to church all that time. I was a, a deacon at one church, then I was an elder at another church, but yet at home, and, and we could get along on a lot of things, my wife and I. We were, we were fine on a lot of things, but there were, we could not talk about the store. We could not talk about that experience. And uh, we, we, we punished each other. We were punishing each other in a variety of ways. We never let each other forget about, you know, I, I didn't let her forget about how she didn't honor me as a husband. And she didn't let me forget about how I didn't um, listen to her and how I made a bad, uh, a bad choice of, of how to spend our retirement money. And it was much more than that. It had actually, in the end, it had nothing to do with the money. It had everything to do with how we treated each other. And remember, idols always demand sacrifices. We can think that these idols are okay, but idols always demand sacrifices. And I, I love the passage when... Um, uh, Dr. Carson this morning talked about this man and about the, the, the 1 Corinthians 10.13 passage that says there's no temptation that comes upon us that, that we can't bear and that God will give us the strength to endure it and, and to not fall to that. And I, I've, really, I've really meditated on that a lot because um, we think sometimes that these Desires are so strong that we have to get in, but God has made an explicit promise. That's not a proverb. That's not a truism. That's a promise. Now, does that mean we will never sin? No, but that means that God has given us a way out, and we don't have an excuse for sin. We, we just don't have one. We can say we're, um, you know, I've got some kind of uh, DSM disorder, I'm narcissistic, or I'm... Um, you know, I'm, I, I can identify my, I'm ADD, and I, I've, I've, I've told my wife I'm all kinds of things. That excuses my sin. And, and we've come to learn there is no excuse for our sin. Sin is sin. There can be things that feed into it that we do have control over. But, um, and if you think you don't have idols, there's a great book, uh, any of the CCEF books, and there's many of them for sale out here. Uh, but there's a book by David Pallison. I don't know if it's in the bookstore here or not. It's called Seeing with New Eyes. And he really unpacks this. And he talks about, um, he talks about x-ray questions. You know, you think about to help identify idols. You can actually start backwards. You can say, what do I get upset about? What do I become angry about? 
And you can actually kind of work backwards to identify that. And you can ask yourself, you know, what do I fear? What do I want? How do I treat people when I don't get something I want? Or what's the first thing you think about in the morning when you get up? What's the last thing you think about uh, before you go to bed? And uh, what do you want to protect? Or what do you want to preserve? And we can have all kinds of justifications about these, but it doesn't make them right. And when we begin to understand who we are in God, we begin to uh, understand how to deal with the idols. And uh, John Piper talks, um, he, he gives much, much instruction as well as does CCF people about uh, what the Bible has to say about cure for an idolatrous heart. And it can be cured. Um, and in, in Acts, it says, if we repent and confess the sin of idolatry and trust in God alone for everything, and we replace idol worship with the worship of the true God, Psalm 37, 4. And then there's a, a passage, another passage that I, I've also come to love, and it's Second um, Peter, uh, let's see, I got it right. It's um, uh, it's the second Peter where it says I, I don't have it offhand, but it says um, where God has given given us everything for life and godliness. He's given us everything for life and godliness. So, uh, where do we go from here? Uh, what, what happens then if we if we don't if we let these idols, these desires get out of control, if we let them become idols, then we have the, then we have the fire. Then, then we have this destruction. We have the, the fire in everyday life. And we've already mentioned some of it where marriages are broken, families are broken, people leave jobs, people leave churches. And uh, we showed the, this, um, you don't have to re- re-show it, but this, this, um, this slide about the people that are, um, that, that are thinking about these broken relationships they have and, in the church, uh, 40% of the pastors, there's many different statistics that we've looked at, but in the U.S. alone, 40% of the pastors experience serious conflict uh, at least once a month. And there's uh, about 18,000 pastors a year in the U.S. alone that leave their pastorate due to conflict, burnout, or moral failure, and half of those leave the ministry altogether. That's 1,500 a month in the U.S., Interestingly, over the last few years, with the um, with the economy the way it is, I've had I as I mentioned, I work a lot with denominational leaders, and they said that uh, there's less turnover right now, but it's not for good reasons. It's because people can't sell their houses, and most churches today, the the, the idea of a parsonage um, is for the most part it, it doesn't exist anymore, uh, with few exceptions, and so pastors um, are upside down in their homes or they just don't want to lose a lot of money. So uh, that's what's holding them at their church, and, and it's not helpful. It's maybe helpful on one hand they have to stay and, and deal with it, but they're not dealing with it. Um, and so um, th- this destruction and then the seemingly low level of conflict, I, I think about when I grew up, I grew up in a very pious family. As I said, I had a Mennonite background, although we didn't go to a Mennonite church. We went to a very evangelical church, and, and I come from a very large family, and we'd have big dinners at my grandma's house after church. And I remember coming uh, coming to uh, dinner after church, and my aunts, who were very stylish, we didn't have a lot of money, but my grandma was a seamstress, so she kept the, the women in the family and taught them how to sew, and they, they kept them in pretty nice clothes. And they were very, they'd be very critical of other, other women's clothing, clothing. And I remember 
some of the conversations were, uh, man, did you see the, the pastor's wife, what she was wearing today? Or did you see uh, how the, the kids were being disruptive, the pastor's kids were being disruptive? And it seemed like most of the criticism and, and, and gossip was around the pastor and his family. Or, or the pastor, uh, he talked too long, or he talked too short, or he, he, didn't, he didn't speak enough out of the Bible, or he spoke too much out of the Bible. And one time even, um, one of my aunts said, did you... See what the pastor's wife was wearing? Her dress didn't, didn't reach her boots. This was when, a, this may have been in the 70s when, um, whenever that was in style. And she said there was like a three-inch gap between her, her dress, the bottom of her dress and her boots. And these were, these were things that this pious Christian family were talking about. And this is this, is this low level, this, this fire that comes out of this, this desire. Why, what was the desire behind that? The desire was to tear other people down so we felt better about ourselves. And again, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that I practice this type of talk and uh, behavior for way too many years. But God has a radically different vision, a radically different vision. And, uh, you know, James 13.35 says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Again, I think it was Dr. Carson this morning that talked about the two greatest commandments. So we love God and we love others. We love them as ourselves. And uh, John 17, 23 says, and they become, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. I was, in a, I was talking with a denominational leader on the East Coast uh, a few years ago and we were, we were having lunch one day and he said, you know, Rick, I was... One of my more um, pensive moments, I was sitting in traffic in the car, and I was thinking, we have 1,500 churches in this state, in our, in our denomination, and yet we have no noticeable impact on the culture. And he said, I thought, how can that be? How can that be? And he said, then I realized that we are treating one another in our relationships no different than everybody else. He said, we, we have nothing, when it comes to that, we have nothing to offer and so no wonder, he said, the outside world is looking in and they're going, those guys are fighting just as much as we are. They have just as much problems as we do. And he said, no wonder we're not having an impact for Christ and uh, that we're not, we're not following scripture. And we talk about the three opportunities, glorify God, serve others, and go to be like Christ. But there's also other opportunities in conflict. There's opportunities to look to the interests of others, to honor one another above ourselves, to show mercy and in this one, to submit to God, to do the right thing, even when it looks like we're going to be at the disadvantage. And that's not our culture today, is it? And, and it gives us an opportunity to reflect God's love and mercy to those around us. And how is that possible? We're here as part of the gospel coalition. And, and it's, this, it's this hope and the impact of the gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ and, I heard a speaker one time talk about the gospel being like a diamond. It's got all these different, um, it, it, it's got these different facets. And as we, as we look at the gospel, we see it applied in different ways. We see it, uh, uh, we, we see that it has power. We have, it's just multifaceted. And, and in, this, in this instance, we're going to look at how, how it applies, uh, how the gospel applies to us, and here's this, this passage I was looking for earlier, this Second Peter 1, 3, it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And I, I love this, given us 
given us everything, everything we need. So what does this look like when, when we fight with our children, with our spouses or coworkers or others? And what does this look like when I, when I feel uh, like becoming angry and I, be, I feel myself becoming angry because they're not seeing things my way? What do I mean when I say this hope of the gospel? And in a book um, by our senior pastor called Peacemaking Pastor, uh, our pastor, Alfred Poyer, says, uh, he talks about um, uh, most people think about the gospel in terms of entering the front door of God's house. And we call this the two-doors gospel, by the way. We think of the, entering the, the, the door, front door of God's house. It's the door through which we step when we're saved. We took this step back then, long ago. And then the other way we minimize the gospel is by relegating it to the distant future. And, and I think Dr. Carson talked about it this morning. It, I, I wrote it down. It was a a ticket or an escape, um, and, and I, I don't know the exact words in front of me, but he mentioned that this morning. This, it's a door through which we exit. It's like a like getting a a, a path. We become a Christian. It's like getting an insurance policy. We're saved. We get this insurance policy. Then we go, great, we have it. We stick it in our back pocket. We go on living our lives, and we die. We go, oh, I got it. I got it here. I got it here. We we get to the door of uh, our death door. We get heaven or hell. We pull it out. Says, I got this ticket to heaven, but we forget. And we don't live this gospel every day. As Dr. Zaspel said this morning, we're not saved over and over again. But in a sense, we need to die to Christ daily, don't we? And Paul talks specifically about that. That's this, that, that we're, though we're not saved, we're saved, we're justified once and for all. We, we really need to, we need to die daily to this. Uh, Tim Keller, of course, one of the founders of the Gospel Coalition, puts it this way. He says that we tend to think of the gospel as something for non-Christians who need to be saved, but once you're saved, you grow and are sanctified through hard work and obedience. But this is a mistake, he says. The main problem in the Christian life is that we have not thought out the deep implications of the gospel. We have not used the gospel on all parts of our life. He says that most people's problems are just a failure to be oriented to the gospel, a failure to grasp and believe it through and through. He says the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into our heads continually. Beat it into their heads continually. The Apostle Paul says that the gospel only does its renewing work in us as we understand it in all its truth. All of us, to some degree, live around the truth of the gospel but do not get it. So the key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal and revival is the continual rediscovery of the gospel. A stage of renewal is always this discovery of a new implication or application of the gospel, seeing more of its truth. This is true for either an individual or a church. You know, I had thought about it this way before, and I suspect maybe many of you are the same. And Alfred Poyer in his book goes on, and Peace and Pastor goes on to say, what then is the gospel if it's not uh, the entrance door or the exit door? What is it then? And then hear this. He, he mentions the air that we breathe again, only in a different context. He said, the gospel is the air that we breathe in the house of God. And then he goes on to say, to change metaphors, the gospel is a conversation taking place in the house. Our father speaking to us, his children, about the gift of his son. The gospel is the ever-present and powerful life-transforming story with a promise for all who hear and believe. And I've, I've thought about this a lot, and i thought about it as I work with people in conflict, and i thought about it as I, as it just how it applies in my own life. And for me, 
It's learning to say, where's God in this situation? I think it was Dr. Carson again this morning that, that talked about there, there's somebody else here. We, we, we look at conflict so much as horizontal that it's this conflict with somebody else. And we never engage with God. We, 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 never, we never say, well, where, where's God living in this? And, and my wife and I didn't do that. For, for almost, uh, for at least eight years, we, we, we never brought God or allowed him to speak into our lives in this situation with the store. And as we begin to go to him and to confess our sins to him and to one another and ask God to help us with this, he began to change our lives. You know, and think about this. What difference does being a Christian make when we get into these, into these situations? And have you thought about that, that in your world you may be the only Christian that, you, you may be the only Christ that people see, that, that they know you're a Christian, but if you get angry in the workplace or you treat your spouse wrong or you're, you gossip in the workplace or you, um, you, know, you laugh at the dirty jokes or whatever, um, how does that reflect Christ? So if people know you're a Christian and they're looking at you, we have to remember that we're ambassadors, as we, we saw in that passage earlier. We are ambassadors of Christ, which means we represent Christ in all that we do. And this has really been um, impactful in Ed's and my relationship. In fact, sometimes I kind of hate it because I want to fight, but then God reminds me, the Holy Spirit speaks in and goes, oh, wait a minute here, Rick. It's not just you and her. Let's look at your selfish desires again, which I have many, by the way. I think it was a Luther that said our hearts are idle factories, and it just continues to churn them out. And, man, am I an example of that. And we're not in a vacuum. We're not, it's, not just, it's not just her and I. It's not just my children and myself. It's not just my coworkers. Even at Peacemaker Ministries, we get into conflict with each other. We write the material. Well, God wrote the material, but we, we sort of take some of it and expound on it, and... We get into conflict, but what difference does it make again? What, we're not in a vacuum. This is the reason that Christ died. This is, this is God refining us. This, is, this conflict is God refining us. And usually the areas we have the most conflict are obviously the areas we need the most work in. And this is God, this is God refining us, tempting Satan, Satan tempting us to, um, uh, and, and God saying, but I have the power for you to overcome this. And it, God, through Christ, we have that power not to sin. It's promised. It's promised to us. Um, the, the gospel is the very foundation of our lives, of everything that we do. And I, th- I thought about this, and I think, I think without it, our efforts are nothing more than good works at best or manipulation at, work, at worst. And, and uh, without the gospel, our efforts are in vain. And we can only go on so long, can't we? Uh, working under our own strength and not God's. Galatians 2, 20 and 21 are, is another favorite couple of verses of mine and, and something I've resonated with a lot and I use with when I'm working with people in conflict. It says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, or if righteousness could be gained through my works and efforts, uh, that's my paraphrase, then Christ died for nothing. This is that daily dying to ourselves, this, this daily dying to Christ. Well, so what does this look like in our everyday life? How does the gospel make a difference in my relationship with others? How I respond with conflict? How does it apply when I get into fights? 
with my wife or boss or, you know, how do we live out this, this passage? And here's some things I, th- I hope that will help you a little bit. The next time that you're in a conflict or you find yourself slipping into anger with someone, ask God to help you by remembering who you are in Christ, that you're a sinner saved by grace, that you're not perfect, but you're not condemned. Through Christ, you are forgiven, and he is living within you. And second, remember who the other person is. If they're a Christian, they're image bearers of a father. We're we're joint heirs. Uh, There are brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're sinners like you and I. In fact, we often say that we're more alike than we are different. We're we're more alike than we are different. And we we always want to focus on these differences, but when it gets down to the heart, we're, we're much more alike. And if they're not believers, how can I demonstrate God's love to them? How can I serve them, as as the speakers were talking about this morning? And and this is evangelism at work. Uh, And again, I want to remind you that you may be the only Christ that they ever see. And remember who God is and what he has done for us, that he sacrificed his son because of our sins, yours and mine. Sin is why uh, Christ died on the cross and why he had to die. Remember God's love for us. Remember that he continues to pursue us, that he continues to work in us. He's always at work in us. And when we stop having problems, then we better start worrying. Then we better start worrying. Um, and remember uh, the story that, that of the unmerciful servant. And if you have a chance, you can go to our website. Josh Harris, who many of you know, uh, was a keynote at our conference last year, and he did, he did the most phenomenal unpacking. I've, I've heard preachers preach on that, you know, dozens of times, and he did the most phenomenal unpacking of that, um, that Matthew 18 passage on the unmerciful servant that I've ever heard. And when he got done, he said, you know, and, and it was a powerful message. He said, we should be on our knees thanking God for what he has done in our lives. And, and yet, we continue to just sort of run over that. And this is really putting our faith in God. And I want to I show uh, quickly the other half of this uh, vacation. This is vacation right way or another day in the life just to show you the gospel at work. Although you'll notice you don't hear scripture in this. This, is, this could be common grace. These could be unbelievers. But, it, but, but I, would ch- I would encourage you to look at it through the lens of Christ. And then we'll come up with a little bit more and then we'll, we'll close. Hey there. Hey. So I'm trying to decide what to do for vacation this year. Oh, yeah? What do you think we should do? Good question. I was actually thinking that this year we could go see my folks. We haven't seen them in a while. Well, what do you think? I think we should go to the beach again this year. I want to relax. We had a good time last year. It's, it's fun. If we go see your folks, your mom, your mom. The work's been hard this year. This has been just a tough year. And we go to your parents, I won't be able to relax. I want to go to the beach. I know. Okay? I know it's been a rough year, especially because of work. And I know you need to relax. And if my mom's around, you can't always do that. But you know how sick my dad is. I mean, I really thought this would be the perfect opportunity for our whole family to go and spend some quality time with him while we can. 
I know how important it is to see your dad. And I know we don't have much more time with him. Right, well, I wonder if we should do that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, let's do that. Well, I don't want you to not get the break that you need. I mean, the beach was great for our whole family last year. I just wish you got longer than two weeks. What if um, you you take the kids and you go see your folks? You take them for a week. No, no, hold on. And then the the last couple of days, I come up, and then after that, we can take the kids to the beach for a week. I mean, it's kind of choppy, but uh, I think it works. Yeah, I think I think it sounds great. Okay, um, you get to spend quality time with your dad. We get to take the kids to the beach and relax and. I only have to see your mom for a couple of days. <laughs> as long as you're good for being away a few weeks, then it's good for everybody. Yes, I think this sounds like the perfect solution. This is really important to me. I appreciate it. Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna head up to bed. You coming? Yeah, I guess so. you notice here what was the difference uh, obviously it ended differently what, um, what what were some things that that you noticed in this case that that were different how, how could you summarize this let me ask you that so we take a stab at it they listened to each other they, they served one another didn't they? they they listened to the other's needs and, and it's not some marriage material talks about compromise. I, I, I vigorously kind of, I, I, I struggle with that. I, I don't think it's compromise. It's, it's not, we don't compromise. It's what can we do to serve each other and glorify God? What's best? Not, not how do we all give a little and you give a little. It's how can we honor, honor God in this situation? And, and that's, there was no scripture used with each other, but yet didn't they live out... Uh, we, we often talk about Philippians 2, 3, and 4, and I, I like to look at actually Philippians 1 through 11, uh, where it says, Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, Do not only, uh, each of you should not only look at your own interests, but also to the interests of others. But then it goes on to say that we're, do, we're doing this to become more Christ-like. Christ who, who died on the cross. And that was also quoted either last night or, or, or uh, this morning. And, and that's the way we need to approach these situations. Now, some conversations will be deeper and, and some will be less, but um, th- this is how we, this is what I'd like, some of what I'd like you to take away uh, this afternoon. We have a few minutes left, and I want to, uh, if you take out your brochure, I want to just walk through, uh, all of you should have gotten a Peacemaker uh, pamphlet, and I'm pretty sure I have one here, this little guy right here. And if you go to the inside, there's this slippery slope. And many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with this slippery slope, but many are probably not. And um, what I'd like to do is just briefly walk through this because I, I think it, it, it's a great demonstration. It's a great example of how uh, both not to respond to conflict and, and how to respond to conflict. And just sort of to go through it quickly, on the left side, on the blue side, you'll see the escape responses and these are not where we want to go. As I mentioned in our marriage, my wife, uh, as people, my wife is an escaper and I'm an attacker. However, interestingly at home with each other, she's more of an attacker and I'm more of an escaper. 
But then when pressure gets enough, then we flip-flop again. So all, all of a sudden, uh, I don't do this too much anymore, but all of a sudden burst into anger, and then she'll want to escape. And I'll say, you started this. You're going to stay here and finish it. And she goes, no, 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 I don't want to do that. You know. And so we have tendencies to go to one side or the other. And as Christians, we often think that in the, the escape zone is the right. That's, that's biblical. As Christians, that's where we go. But that's not true. That, that's not helpful. Now, sometimes it's okay to overlook, and we need to overlook. And Proverbs says it's to, to a man's glory to overlook an offense. But, but that's different than denial. Uh, the three stages, and we're not going to unpack them now, but are denial, flight, and suicide in the escape zone. And, and denial is saying, oh, there's no problem. There's no problem. I don't have a problem. I just never want to talk to that person again. You know, but, but I don't have any problem with them. Or I've forgiven them, but, but I'll, I'll never have anything to do with them again. By the way, the answers to uh, Pastor Ron's uh, four promises of forgiveness, I, I gave you a cheat sheet. They're on the back of this. Um, you can look at them later. But uh, then on the other side, we have the attack responses. And, and I want to I present just a little different picture of this. We have assault, litigation, and murder. Now, usually in the church, we don't assault. Although one time I worked with a church conflict uh, that uh, the police actually came because there was a fight that erupted under the flagpole. They had a Christian school. They were uh, attached uh, by, between parents and teachers, some parents and teachers on the National Day of Prayer under the, under the flagpole. It was serious enough the police actually were called. Most of the time, though, it's not physical. What kind of assault is it that we use? Verbal gossip, criticism, or, or angry words to a person, but we can be gossip and criticism is an attack because what are we doing? We're trying to tear down that other person. And then litigation, this is something we think about normally that takes place in a court of law where, we're, where uh, attorneys, uh, when they litigate, what they're trying to do is prove their point so they pile on evidence. But you know what? As people and as Christians... We litigate in the court of public opinion daily, don't we? When we get hurt by someone or angry with someone, what do we oftentimes do? Don't we talk to other people about, you know, you can't believe what this person said. You know, I was sitting here with Pastor Ron. Oh, you can't believe what he said. You know, and, and, and that's not true, of course, but, uh, but, but that's what happens. Or, or I go to work and I say, my wife, oh. You can't believe, or my kid, you know, and, and or we talk about other workers, and which, which is which is where I struggle with. I talk about other workers, and what am I doing? I'm, I'm trying to get people. I'm trying to pile on evidence of why I am right and why they are wrong. That that's that's sin, ladies and gentlemen. That's 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 sin. That's that's slander. That's gossip, and that's again, it gets to the hard issue, doesn't it? And then, and then lastly is murder. And most of us in here, um, I, 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 maybe everybody in here could say, well, I, I'm not a murderer. But yet in First John it says uh, that if we uh, hate our brother, we're a murderer. And so, again, I, I stand before you a convicted murderer, and probably each person in this room can be convicted of that as well. And I encourage you to take this um, and, and take it with your Bible and prayer and, and dig through these passages, and we have some. We have a small group study uh, out there, which I think you've, you've got some information about that, that also uh, can begin to unpack that a lot more as well. Um, the last thing that I want to talk about, and then I'll open it up to um, any question and answer, or I'll let you go, uh, whichever you want. Um, Trent told me to 
try to stay a minute to 40, or an hour to 45 minutes. So, um, but the last thing is also in here, and I want to talk just a little bit about the four G's. We have uh, what we call our systematic theology of biblical peacemaking. And, um, and those of you that have been around for a while, that have studied our material, uh, are some of you may be familiar with it, but I want to go through it uh, just a little bit again, just kind of touch on it, the four G's. And again, with these examples are laid out in the, in the Peacemaker Pledge, which we're not going to cover. But the first G is glorify God. And, and when, when, when you say the systematic theology, this is the grid that we would encourage you to run it through. This is a, a, a biblical theology, a, a way to look at conflict and a way to practice conflict. And the first G is glorify God. And this is based on 1 Corinthians 10.31. It says, Where, whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. And that includes conflict. And, and a question here to summarize this is the question we need to ask ourselves is how can I please and honor God in this situation? Um, when I used to get in fights with people and still sometimes, uh, that's not exactly the first question that comes to mind when, when I'm hurt or I want my own way and somebody doesn't agree with me. I don't think, oh, oh, oh I know. How can I please and honor God in this situation? But, you know, as I begin to put, uh, as I've been began to memorize scripture and begin to practice this and begin to ask God to, to, to work in my heart. And as he's worked in my heart, it, it has become, uh, it has changed. And it has changed, uh, as I mentioned earlier, my wife's and my relationship a lot and my relationship with others. But we need to first commit, uh, you know, to glorifying God in the situation. How can I glorify God in the situation? Next one is based on Matthew 7, 5, is get the log out of your eye. And, and the question here is, how can I show Jesus' work in me by taking responsibility for my contribution to the conflict. And you may be sitting here thinking, well, Rick, you don't understand. Uh, I'm only partially wrong. If there was, we don't always think about it in these terms. In fact, we probably very rarely think about it in these terms specifically. But if conflict, if, if, if blame could be assigned, I'd only maybe have 10% blame. They'd have 90%, you know. So I, I really don't have any responsibility in this. Uh, well, first of all, that's our view that we only have 10% and they have 90%. That's why there's, there's always these lawsuits because every, both sides think they're right. And, and are, who's the, is there any attorneys here in this room? I, I don't see any attorneys. Usually there's some attorneys in the room, and I, I always ask them, I said, uh, you know, so why do people litigate? Well, they litigate because they think they're right, and the other side thinks they're right. Otherwise, they wouldn't be litigating. If, if one side thought they were mostly wrong, they, they wouldn't go to court, but... It, it's the same with us. So we we, we want to think, we, we minimize it, our blame in our own, own mind. And, and to be fair, though, sometimes we aren't much at fault. Uh, about uh, six years ago, I met a young lady on an airplane. Some of you, I think, know this story. Well, I know some of you do because I've known some of you here for a long time. And, and we met this, uh, I met a 15-year-old girl. I was coming back from L.A., uh, had done a mediation down there. And, and this girl sat next to me, and uh, we got, it was kind of a, it seemed a little unusual, and they got talking, and she was a foster child who had moved to uh, California from Mississippi, and it hadn't worked out with the foster family, so she was returning to, um, uh, to Mississippi. And as we, um, as we got talking, I found out a little bit more about her situation. And uh, she, her mom was a, a drug addict and alcoholic and abandoned her when she was just a few, few weeks old. And her dad was a raging alcoholic who... Uh, ended up abusing her, and that's why she was in the in the foster program. We ended up uh, going back and looking for her, 
looking, looking for her and adopting her. And she's 22 now, and she's fabulous. In fact, she's thinking, uh, my wife has told me at lunch that um, uh, we better be prepared for a, a wedding maybe at Christmas time. So uh, anyway, but the point of it is, she was largely not at fault for her situation, but yet still, as when, when, she, when we adopted her, and I, I walked through, even though she was 16 then, I walked through the, the young peacemaker with her, and we talked about that, and she instantly could apply these principles, and she said, well, even, even though my dad and mom were largely at fault, there was things, not with, my, not with her mom, obviously, but with her dad that she did to contribute to it. And so anybody, I think, would look at it and say, well, she was hardly at fault. He was, you know, probably 99%. She was 1%. But even if we're 1%, we need to take 100% responsibility for that, that 1%. It doesn't matter uh, what, uh, what the other person has done. It, it, it does, but as far as our responsibility, it doesn't matter. We need to take 100% responsibility. Sometimes we're hurt unfairly, unjustified. I'm going to close with a story in a few minutes to demonstrate that, that we didn't do anything at all to provoke. Um, but if we've, if we've, but then oftentimes we don't respond well. We may not have started this, this conflict. It may have, we may have been perfectly innocent, although we're never perfectly innocent. But, um, but we do things then, we, we don't respond well. We respond sinfully to it. So getting the log out um, and glorifying God are the first two G's. And if, if we were going to be teaching today, if we were going to go through the whole seminar, we would spend probably 75% of our time teaching these two principles and 25 or 30% of the time teaching the second two. And the reason being is the first two is our two that we have, we have 100% control over. And, and the last two we don't. And the third, the third G, uh, one, the first of the last two, is gently restore. And that's how we can, the question here is, how can I lovingly serve others by helping them take responsibility for their contribution to the conflict? And this is where, how, how do I approach the other person? If, I, if I'm glorifying God, if, I, if I've confessed my sin, but yet I still need, somebody else has done something to harm the cause of Christ or they've, done something that's too large to overlook, how do I approach them? And we even have guidelines on how to have a difficult conversation. But again, we, can't, we don't have any control over how they respond, do we? We, we have no control. We, we can do everything godly. We can do everything right. And they may, for some reason, God may allow their hearts to stay hard. And, and that's based on Galatians 6.1. It says, um, uh, if someone falls, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. We used to uh, have... Used to be based on used to be uh, go and show your brother's fault based on Matthew 15 through 17, but we found that people always wanted to go to that G first. And I think about our marriage too. That's where I always wanted to go first was show my wife her fault, and uh, of course, completely in an unbiblical manner. Uh, but but eight, the Matthew 18 15 17 is is in that process. But if we're going to look at Matthew 18, we need to look before in the in the around Matthew 12 where it says if a if a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off, we should uh, leave the 99 and go look for that go look for that sheep or later in the Matthew 18 where Matthew 18 passage where it talks about the unmerciful servants but but again the Matthew 18 15 through 17 can play into that where we uh, we go and approach that person we take one or, if they don't listen we take one or two others along and we tell it to the church but but that's that's down the road a little bit that the goal always should be how do we restore people and then the last G uh, go and be reconciled, and that's based on Matthew 5, actually it should be 5.23 and 5.24, where it says, 
If you are offering up your gift at the altar, you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift and go and be reconciled and then come back and offer up your gift. And I'm, I'm partway through seminary. I will never be a theologian like our two speakers here. But my understanding is that's the only place in Scripture where God tells us to stop doing something good and go do something else and then come back and finish what we're doing. He puts that much importance on reconciliation. And there's much, much more that, that we teach on this, or the Bible teach on this, teaches on this, that, that we don't have time today. But this gives you a little bit of an overview. And, and you can actually just do a lot of studying out of this. You can go to our website and do a lot of downloading. And we have, again, we have our small group study that you can order. Uh, actually, if you order one today, you get two for the price of one. So if you're interested in that, come by and see me. I'd like to close with two things. And then if any of you want to talk, we can... Uh, I'll probably just excuse everybody, and then if, I'll, I'll be around to visit a little bit if you want to. But I'd like to close with two things. I want to close, the very last, I'm going to close with a, a, a short video clip called Perspectives. And I will introduce that in a minute. But before that, I want to close with a story that just happened. And this story is, um, I'm going to tell you this story not to bring any attention to myself. Well, there's probably a little bit of that in it. I don't mean to. But, but, to, but, but to actually exemplify my wife's and my relationship, because... Uh, it has everything to do with that and God working in our lives. And uh, we had a chance uh, th- a couple weeks ago to go to Asia. We just got back actually Tuesday and um, Southeast Asia. And our church works with, uh, called the Asian, Asian Crescent Partnership. There's several, uh, we, we go to a PCA church and, and there's about five or six PCA churches that are involved with this partnership. And we work in Bangladesh and in uh, Malaysia. And the, the, the specific work of this is with, we're working with national pastors in church planning with Muslim converts or converting Muslims. And in Malaysia, it's actually illegal. In Bangladesh, it's legal, but it's not very common. And uh, so we went over there, our church sent us over to see if there was ways, if we could work out, if, if it would be helpful and how could we, if it would be reasonable for us to go over maybe once or twice a year for the next several years to train nationals in peacemaking so they can train others we're not going over there to do peacemaking we're going over there to train them to 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 bring this into the church the biblical principles in the church so i was pretty excited about it you know you kind of maybe got a sense i'm the harley guy i'm the i'm the guy that wanted to risk everything and i lost everything with the store and so i'm thinking man this is really cool and i said annette we can both go over she goes i don't want to go over to asia well why do i want to do that i said well honey, this would be exciting it'd be, it'd be a great adventure we can and she was actually born in the mission field, although she doesn't remember. She was born in Japan. And I said, you know, you kind of get back to your roots, and this will be great. She said, Rick, I, I don't want to go to that part of the country. And Bangladesh is a third-world country, and Malaysia is, is, uh, is almost all Muslim. And she said, I, I don't, I, I don't want to do that. I mean, something could happen. I said, nothing's going to happen. And that I'll, I'll take care of it if anything has happened. Nothing's going to happen. So... She, she agreed. I mean, she, she didn't go over there resentfully, and she, she wouldn't say that. And she, did, she said, okay. She said, I'll, I'll, I'll go. But, and and it, wasn't, it wasn't, like, again, it wasn't, wasn't resentful. So we, we made arrangements. We started made, making arrangements last fall, and, and the time came. And we, uh, we flew over there, and we, we flew directly, actually, to Dhaka, where we had a few stops in between. But it's hard to fly. There's no direct flights from Billings but uh, to Dhaka, Bangladesh. But... We flew into Dhaka, and uh, have you ever been, any of you ever been there? Has somebody been there? 
Um, anyway, Doc is very third world. It's, it's, I've been to uh, Cairo, which was surprisingly third world. I've been to Mexico a lot of times. But this is as third world as I'd ever seen. It was a, it's dirty. It's a huge, huge city, totally in chaos, the traffic. And it's known as having the worst traffic in the world and uh, just, just filthy and very poor people. The average, in fact, the average uh, income for the average uh, uh, Bangladeshi is, is uh, $700 a year. $700 a year. They make, the laborers make about $3 a day. And we toured a garment factory and we saw some, some, uh, some construction laborers. And they make three buck, about 3 bucks a day. And so we actually stayed in a surprisingly nice hotel. Now, it's not nice by American standards. And we, they, they do have a Radisson over there. We didn't stay there. We stayed at a local hotel, which, was, which is where the missionaries stay when they go over in Dhaka. And so we were there for a few days. We... Uh, they're building, the Presbyterian, Presbyterian Church of Bangladesh is building a, um, a center. So we went there, and they were doing some teaching, and then we, we observed that. And then we went to, uh, there's a, a, an organization called IFB. It's uh, Something Fellowship uh, of Bangladesh. It's uh, multi-denominational churches, Assembly of God, Baptist churches, other churches that are working specifically with, with Muslim converts. We went up to that center. It's a Baptist center, really nice, actually pretty nice, again, by Bangladeshi standards. And then we were going to go to rural, more rural Bangladesh and spend a night and then go to a, to a rural site where there's a church plant. There's a, a church plant with a national pastor, and there was some temporary buildings on it. And Annette said, I, I'm kind of scared. I said, Not, nothing to be afraid of. Bangladeshi people are very peaceful people. And that, it's going to be fine. And I said, okay, you'll take care of me. I said, I'll take care of you. So we spent the night um, at, a, at a really rough hotel. Uh, in, in a town called Jamalpur, and the next day we drove, um, you, can only, you can only average about 15 miles an hour on these roads. We drove not that far, about 20 miles to a, a village, a very third world village of several thousand people. And then we actually went, it took us 30 minutes, but it was, it was on a one lane, very rough, run, one lane road that we could only go about two or three miles an hour on to the church property, probably about five or six miles, but again, it took us about 30 minutes. And as we got close to this property, uh, the, 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 the national head of the, 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 the church planning organization that we work with there, he's Bangladeshi, he, his, phone, his cell phone rang and he answered it and he got kind of a concerned look on his face. And we came around a corner and there was a, a large group of angry men. I mean, we're in the middle of nowhere and there's about 200. And they were shouting, they were coming, they weren't very far from our van, they were picking up things on the way over and... Uh, we said, what's going on? And he sets the phone down. He said, apparently they're demonstrating against Christians. And from a madrasa school, uh, the next village up. And we, we were at the church property, and we had to pull off the road to turn, to, to, to park. And we couldn't turn, I mean, we couldn't, have, you can't fast, just do a U-turn and go back. And then we turned off, and just as we turned off, they surrounded the van, and all of a sudden we hear things hitting the van hard. And then the windows start breaking. And then, um, and that kind of hollers, and I said, get down. And we got down, and all the windows were shattered in the van, and things were hitting the van, things were flying through the van. And then, as quick as it started, they left. And then all of a sudden, well, we didn't know they left. As quick as it started, it stopped, and the pastor said, uh, we need to get out. And so I'm thinking, well, I'm thinking several thoughts. One is, I'm thinking of mob mentality. I'm thinking of uh, God is more powerful than these people, but... This could be the day. You know, I'm thinking, and then, then my next thought was, but I, 
if we're martyred, I mean, we, we didn't do anything. I, I can't be martyred. I don't mind dying, but I haven't done anything. I just, I'm an innocent bystander, but, but I was prepared to die, but I felt bad about my wife and, and my grandkids, and I felt especially bad. Here, I, my, I told my wife, you know, this is just going to be a fun trip to Bangladesh. And um, so we got out not knowing, having any idea. We, we thought we were being taken into captivity or they wanted us out so they could stone us or what have you. Because there was, I mean, they, they'd already busted out all the windows, dented up the van. And, and um, we, had, we were covered with glass. We were all bleeding. We had glass cuts all over. We had glass in our clothes. And, and uh, so we, we got out. And we then pretty quickly realized that the, we saw this, this group had moved over to the church property, which was about 100 yards away, and they were tearing down. We had some temporary buildings with signs. They were tearing all that stuff down, and they were still shouting. And then they, then they kind of just moved on. And, and we were sort of stunned because this all happened in seconds. And um, I don't know if any of you have been through an experience like this before. I have never have. I'm sort of an adventurer, but I had never been through something like this. And, and so we... The people that were there, there was probably another hundred people kind of standing around, and, and part of them were Christians, and, and our, there was two or three pastors from the area, and they were trying to comfort us, and, and we, nobody broke down, nobody screamed, it was just, we were all kind of, I think, sort of in a little bit of a daze, and so we pretty soon, uh, pastor, our pastor, Ayub said, well, let's, let's, we're going to go back, and so, okay, and so we get back, and we thinking, we're thinking we're going to drive back to Dhaka like this. We get a couple miles up the road, and then he pulls off, and because we're sitting on glass, we get uh, glass in our shoes and our clothes, so we stop, we get out, we brush off the seats and get rid of the glass, and, and um, uh, the, the rest of the story is we pulled into the police station, and um, that, that's a whole other story, spending the rest of the day with increasingly higher officials from the local uh, district, which is like a state. There are 68 districts in, jo- in Bangladesh, and we, uh, that was a whole other experience. Uh, but my wife, um, I'm thinking, um, well, this didn't go quite like we planned. And uh, I said, honey, you don't have to. The only thing I could say is, you know, we, we, were, we were thankful, we prayed that God spared us, uh, although everyone, I think, was, was prepared uh, to go if that's what God was calling us to do. But I, I told my wife, I said, uh, well, you don't have to come back to Bangladesh, I guess. <laughs> and she, and I, she didn't say anything. And, um, and so uh, we, it was a little bit of a tough day because we were, we didn't know if we were going to, we almost thought at one point we were going to end up in a Bangladeshi prison or a jail cell, but we didn't. And they actually ended up treating us very well. And we, we got back about one o'clock in the morning and, and we, kind of debriefed on the way back in. We rented a van and a driver that took us back in because police impounded the van. And so we, um, we kind of debriefed. We went back in. We prayed some more. And then the next day we met again, uh, those of us, because the next day, actually that evening, people were starting to go back to the States. And, and we were going go to go to uh, Kuala Lumpur the next morning. And, and we talked about it some more. And Annette said, uh, I didn't, didn't say a whole, in fact, I didn't even say anything there. Then we flew to Kuala Lumpur, and I actually did a peacemaker seminar, a, a four-hour peacemaker seminar the next week at a Chinese church in Kuala Lumpur. And, and as we were flying home then on Monday and Tuesday, she said, Rick, she said, um, you know, if God leaves us, I, I will go back. She said, I, I, um, I'm still fearful, but, but that's okay. She said, I, you know, people, people are living with this every day, and it just made it, 
it made it real. I was, I was listening to Dr. Carson talk about the suffering, and I don't feel that we suffered. I mean, um, now my wife did. She got hit very hard in the side of the head. She's got, she's still got a black eye. She's got a very blue, bruised side of the face because she got hit with a, we don't know what, or a, a, it had to have been a brick or a, something like that because it, it hit her hard before she got down. But, um, you know, there, there are people that have lived for 2,000 years suffering for Christ this way. And these, these people are, um, are living with us daily. But Annette, um, it was a different response actually for me and for her. I, I came back obviously sobered a bit by the situation. Um, and, and I thought I, I, can't, I can't press her to, to come back because they did invite us back. They, they do want us to come back and, and work uh, with them. And um, although they understood if we wouldn't want to come back, but uh, uh, I didn't. I didn't make any commitments while we were there because I needed to talk to my wife first. But uh, but but she didn't. This time uh, we weren't re- resentful towards each other, and she could have easily been. She could have easily said, "Rick, I told you something was going to happen. I told you I didn't want to go." And yet, and what was ironic is she's the only one. There was there was eight of us in this van from the U.S., and she was the only one that that came away with any marks. I mean, we, we all had some small cuts, but nothing significant. And she's the only one that came back with that, and yet she has a, just this great attitude, and she said, you know, it's probably not my first choice to go back, but I, I, will, I will be obedient. And, and, that, and, and, and that is God changing our hearts. That's a, a bit of an extreme example, but it's an example of God changing our hearts. So I want to close with a short clip. It's, it's about two minutes. It's called Perspectives. And I want you to watch the words. Those of you, I think Tara showed this, so, for the, so some of you women have seen this, but it's a, it's a great clip that, that I think, again, exemplifies uh, God's power and God's grace and how we view things. And, it, and it's my desire, again, that you leave today beginning to view conflict through the lens of Scripture, through the, through, through the lens of Christ, Christ's eyes rather than through our own. And, and this is a great short clip to end with. So, Chris, if you want to go ahead and, and roll that, that would be great. The conflicts that rage all around us can't be solved by the cross. And I do not believe I will find peace in my own life. My problems are too big for Jesus. I refuse to believe that churches can be reconciled and come to live in peace, but it's because of God we fight and quarrel. It's happening all around the world. It's what happened in Northern Ireland. Yeah, it's what happened in my church. Can people who hate each other ever come to be reconciled? The gospel doesn't change things. Only a fool believes the reckless promise of God that there's real hope in this broken world. This is what I believe. This is what I believe, that there's real hope in this broken world, the reckless promise of God. Only a fool believes the gospel doesn't change things. Can people who hate each other ever come to be reconciled? Yes. It's what happened in my church. It's what happened in Northern Ireland. It's happening all around the world. We fight and quarrel, but it's because of God. Churches can be reconciled and come to live in peace. 
I refuse to believe that my problems are too big for Jesus. I will find peace in my own life, and I do not believe the conflicts that rage all around us can't be solved by the cross.